Hi, I'm Tilly, otherwise known as at the Hungry Book Reader on Instagram, and welcome to the very first episode of Women Writing Podcast. You can find more information on the website www.womenwritingpodcast.com. This episode is on the work of Jamaica Kincaid. I first discovered the work of Kincaid as an undergrad just before my final year, and I spent the next few months working on her novels for my dissertation. For those of you who might be interested and might be students yourself, it was particularly focused on the motif of cloth in her autofiction. Autofiction is best described as a kind of creative life writing, in which the author shares elements of their own life with the character or narrator while changing others. They often highlight the similarities between themselves and their characters through using the first-person pronoun, I, and giving the narrator their name, or through paratextual details. Paratext refers to the parts of the novel around the main section, so the cover, back cover, dedication, foreword, etc. For instance, Jamaica Kincaid was born Elaine Potter Richardson. The character in her novel Mr Potter, published in 2007, is also called Elaine Potter, and we find out at the end of the novel Lucy that Lucy's second name is also Lucy Potter. Another example of more recent autofiction, which was a term first coined by Serge Dubrovsky in his novel Feast, if you want another recommendation for a novel we'll be talking about later in this podcast, and you want to get a head start on reading it, is Darian Negriefer's A Ghost in the Throat. Now I'm a PhD student working on women writing exile in Francophone and Anglophone literature, so literature from the French-speaking and English-speaking world and beyond, a research topic that can be traced back to that dissertation that I wrote on Jamaica Kincaid because it concentrates on autofiction. For that reason, I thought it would be poetic, no pun intended, to start the Women Writing podcast with an episode on Kincaid. This episode also introduces the main areas of my research, which will come up in later podcast episodes, particularly autofiction and exile, through a discussion of the novel Lucy, which was published in 1990. There will be spoilers, so I hope this introduction encourages you to either stop listening now, get a hold of the copy and read it before you listen, or just to listen and find out more about the author if maybe you've read her work before. I started Women Writing to talk about women writers who I think are often overlooked or forgotten about in university syllabuses. Kincaid, for instance, is taught widely in the US, but not as well known here in the UK. And to talk about themes central to women's writing, such as multilingualism and queerness. I also hope in doing so to introduce you to a range of translated fiction and fiction in its original language from all over the globe and fiction from small or independent presses that champion innovative writing, such as Galley Beggar Press and Les Fugitifs Press. With that out of the way, let's dive into Jamaica Kincaid's Lucy. Jamaica Kincaid was born in Antigua in in 1949. Like Lucy, the eponymous narrator of her 1990 novel, she left as a young woman to work as an au pair in New York. Afterwards, she studied photography, attended Franconia College in New Hampshire, and became a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her first book, At the Bottom of the River, a collection of short stories, was published in 1983, and since then she has published both fiction and non-fiction, including My Brother, about her brother's death from AIDS, and A Small Place, an essay on the impact of colonialism and neocolonialism in the form of tourism on Antigua's economy and society. She now teaches in the English, African and African American Studies Department at Harvard University. You can probably tell from this very short introduction to Kincaid's work that many of the same themes resurface in both her fiction and non-fiction. 
For instance, she examines what it means to be caught between two places, the feeling of not fully belonging in either, and the search for self-definition in this space. She also explores racism in the US, the British colonial legacy in Antigua, and how its after-effects persist into the post-colonial era, if we can truly call it that. She also focuses on the relationship between mothers and daughters, and the intertwining of the patriarchal and colonial worlds. Her characters carve out a space for female sexuality and creativity within these narrow constraints. In Lucy, all these themes come to the fore. The narrator, like Kincaid, leaves Antigua to work as an au pair for a wealthy American family in Manhattan. She has a really complex relationship to her home and family. Her mother functions as a kind of mouthpiece for patriarchal and colonial views and favouritises her younger brothers. So Lucy talks of her hatred towards her parents in particular. She says, I was an only child until I was nine years old. And then in the space of five years, my mother had three male children. Each time a new child was born, my mother and father announced to each other with great seriousness that the new child would go to university in England and study to become a doctor or lawyer or someone who would occupy an important and influential position in society. Whenever I saw her eyes fill up with tears at the thought of how proud she would be at some deed her sons had accomplished, I felt a sword go through my heart, for there was no accompanying scenario in which she saw me, her only identical offspring, in a remotely similar situation. To myself, I then began to call her Mrs Judas, and I began to plan a separation from her. We can see that Lucy doesn't feel close at all with her brothers, who she calls her mother's three male children. And she also resents the attention that they're paid that she has never got from her mother or father. But Lucy also is determined and she actually does go study abroad or go work abroad in the way that her parents would have wanted her her brothers to do, their sons. She also says, I never wanted to live in that place again, talking about Antigua, but if for some reason I was forced to live there again, I would never accept the harsh judgments made against me by people whose only power to do so was that they had known me from the moment I was born. So she's kind of taking away the power from her parents to decide her future, and she's going to write her own future herself. Yet, the US is not a space of straightforward liberation. On the other hand, in the US, Lucy is thought of as African-American simply because of the colour of her skin, though her history is, of course, very different from those in the African-American community, which just shows how little people in the US know of Antigua and the everyday racism that she has to confront. The family Lucy works for also failed to understand her or to engage properly with the political question that her presence in the home raises. Instead, Mariah, the mother of this family, becomes as suffocating as Lucy's own mother, and in the end, she must break away from her too. To start the podcast and the main section on Lucy, I'm actually going to introduce another work by by Jamaica Kincaid, which is a short story, and it was included in her collection at the bottom of the river. It's called Girl. Girl is a list of all the orders and commands that one young woman has been given by her mother, such as wash the white clothes on Monday and put them on the stone heap, wash the colour clothes on Tuesday. We can see not only that, as a girl, the nameless narrator is expected to do a series of domestic tasks, which we can presume or we can guess her brothers would never have to do, 
but that these tasks are completely arbitrary. Why does she have to do the colour clothes on Tuesday, for instance? It doesn't make any sense, really. The injunctions or orders build up, interspersed with threatening questions the mother asks her daughter, such as, is it true you sing Benna in Sunday school? Benna refers to a style of Antiguan music and was a way in which Antiguan people could communicate without British columnists understanding them. And it's also associated, therefore, with rumours and gossip. If the girl has been singing Benna in Sunday school, she's therefore not only acted sinfully, but against the colonialist behaviours her mother wants to instil in her. We can see that the mother becomes a tool for colonialism and patriarchy, believing someone else's account before she believes her daughter, and therefore also participating in the very gossip she's criticising her daughter for, and policing her daughter. She particularly polices her daughter's body. She denies her any pleasure, saying, don't eat fruit on the street. And she's also really concerned with her sexuality. She says to her, shockingly, and there's a warning for explicit language here, on Sundays try to walk like a lady and not like the slut you are so bent on becoming, and hem a dress when you see the hem coming down, and so prevent yourself from looking like the slut I know you are so bent on becoming. Hypocritically, she uses the very language she tells her daughter not to use. The repetition here and plosives in the phrase bent on becoming really convey a sense of the disdain this woman has for her daughter and her disappointment in her. Her words are weapons to mould her daughter into a girl who will not disrupt the peace or resist or rebel. The mother herself parrots patriarchal and colonialist discourse to her own daughter, becoming complicit in these structures. As well as her own power, however, we can see that of the daughters. For Kincaid, knowing someone's name is a way of having power over them. Therefore, the fact that the mother doesn't use the girl's name and the reader doesn't learn it means the girl, the nameless girl, in a way is free to escape these orders and commands that she's been given. In Lucy, the narrator talks about not wanting to become an echo of her mother. In this short story, Girl, the young woman, because it is, after all, the young woman repeating the mother's words, not just the mother herself speaking, does become an echo of the mother, yet she becomes a kind of subversive echo. She shows how mothers pass to their daughters a discourse that is in itself an echo of the colonizer's speech. In that way, she is singing Banner in Sunday school, spreading seeds of resistance. The narrator of Lucy, to go back to the novel now, is similar to this girl in some ways. She says, I had been a girl of whom certain things were expected, none of them too bad. A career as a nurse, for example, a sense of duty to my parents, obedience to the law and worship of convention. However, after moving to the US, she's changed. But in one year of being away from home, she says, that girl had gone out of existence. For instance, firstly, she embraces her sexuality. She thinks of writing back to her mother, who's obviously similar to the mother in the short story Girl. Life as a slut was very enjoyable, thank you very much. And she also states, I had not known such pleasure could exist. Exile does give her the space in which to escape the policing of her mother. At school in Antigua, Queen Victoria Girls' School, Lucy learnt by heart and recited Wordsworth, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, which was first published in 1807 in which the poet-narrator stumbles across a landscape of dancing daffodils. Lucy says, I had been made to memorise it, verse after verse. It is not her choice, but instead something she's forced to do, and she is ultimately praised for how nicely she had pronounced every word. At this point, she feels she is at the height of her two-facedness. She acts one way while feeling another. She is made to echo British diction, to echo the coloniser, to echo a white male, to echo a poem about a flower she has never even seen.
When she's praised for her recital, she says, And so I made pleasant little noises that showed both modesty and appreciation. But inside, I was making a vow to erase from my mind, line by line, every word of that poem. As Kristen Marlis articulates in her article, which I have listed below and is also on the website, Lucy is therefore already in exile in Antigua because she has lost her tongue. Marlis says, The seizure of land, the disruption of sexual and familial relationships, the erasure of culture, all these make up the legacy of colonialism, but none matches the force of the loss of the tongue, the linguistic power to define oneself and one's world. To lose one's tongue is to experience a permanent exile. In becoming an echo, in losing her control over her tongue, Lucy already knows what exile feels like before she's even moved abroad. Yet an echo is inherently split. It can deviate from the original sound, reverberate and rebound and become something different. Lucy realises this in the US. The mother of the family she's au-pairing for, Mariah, takes her to see the daffodils, blindfolding her and then revealing the flowers, which Lucy doesn't recognise as daffodils at first. She simply sees many yellow flowers. Lucy's reaction to the flowers is definitely not the one Mariah was hoping for. Lucy says to herself, not out loud to Mariah, I did not know what these flowers were, and so it was a mystery to me why I wanted to kill them. I wish that I had an enormous scythe. I would just walk down the path, dragging it alongside me, and I would cut these flowers down at the place where they emerged from the ground. When Mariah tells her they're daffodils finally, Mariah says, I'm sorry about the poem, but I'm hoping you'll find them lovely all the same. As Yana Evans-Brazil explores in her essay on the topic, Mariah tries to impose her own vision of daffodils onto Lucy. She, quote marks, enacts her own form of cultural privilege, power and control. Brazil also points out that in blindfolding Lucy and then revealing the flowers and having to actually tell Lucy that the flowers are daffodils, Mariah positions herself in control over Lucy's sight and vision, quite literally. At first, Lucy becomes mute in response. She doesn't know what to say. But then she finds her voice and calls out Mariah's blindness. She says, Mariah, do you realise that at 10 years of age I had to learn by heart a long poem about some flowers I would not see in real life until I was 19? As Brazil argues, Lucy disrupts the myth that Mariah wants to teach her, one of beauty and erasure, finding marginal histories within history with a capital H. Throughout the novel, we can see that Mariah wants to ignore the fact of Lucy's blackness. She presses upon Lucy books about Freud and white womanhood, which she believes will explain Lucy's experiences to her. In doing so, she ignores her own complicity in Lucy's oppression and the racism of her own family. For instance, Mariah claims that her ancestors were Native American. Lucy says, Mariah says I have Indian blood in me, and underneath everything I could swear she says it as if she were announcing her possession of a trophy. How do you get to be the sort of victor who can claim to be the vanquished also? Repeatedly, Lucy asks rhetorical questions, beginning with this phrase, how do you get to be? How do you get to be the sort of person? How do you get to be the sort of victor? It becomes almost a refrain or chorus. How can you be the sort of person who? In doing so, in using this repetition, Kincaid challenges the Western reader and critic to reflect on their own biases. But she also shows how Lucy gains confidence because, whereas at first Lucy keeps these questions to herself, when she sees the daffodils, she does actually voice her question to Mariah. Lucy also disrupts, I would argue, the myth of Wordsworth. As a white male author or creator, 
as something to aspire to. In Lucy, the narrator at first also identifies with another white male creator, Gauguin, Paul Gauguin. She compares her yearnings to leave the prison in which she was born, an unbearable prison, as she calls it, to those of this artist who left his native France for first Martinique in the Caribbean and then Tahiti, where he made many of his most famous paintings, many of which were of indigenous, naked women. Indeed, many of the covers of Lucy have figures of Gauguin's women on the front. His Tahitian muse, Teha Amana, also known as Tehura, was only 13 when she met Gauguin and became his native wife. As Tiare Tuya says in her article on artuk.org, native wives were commonly taken by French colonialists like Gauguin at the time, but the marriages weren't legally binding, therefore there was no protection for these wives. After Gauguin left to return to France, she ma- the young woman, Teha Amana, married a Tahitian man and she had two children. She died in 1918 from the Spanish flu epidemic. She never, as Tuya says, received any of the acclaim that came with Gauguin's art, nor asked for any money or fame from it. Lucy, in Kincaid's novel, soon realises that Gauguin would have exoticised her as he exoticised and exploited the indigenous nameless women in his paintings, becoming an echo of them and an echo of a culture represented by the coloniser, which is used to encourage the very tourism that Kincaid disclaims in a small place. Lucy says... I was not a man, I was a young woman from the fringes of the world, and when I left my home, I had wrapped around my shoulders the mantle of a servant. The literature and art Lucy was brought up on and taught she should admire and revere by Wordsworth and Gauguin, for example, is something to which she cannot relate, and something which is forced upon her. She says, of course, his life, Gauguin's, could be found in the pages of a book. I had just begun to notice that the lives of men always are. Kincaid has spoken of growing up reading British literature, feeling British because of her reading, and her particular admiration for the Brontes. The novel Lucy echoes, which is a fact little acknowledged by critics, Villette by Charlotte Bronte. In Villette, the main character is called Lucy Snow. She leaves her home in England to go work abroad as a kind of servant, a hybrid between governess and lady's maid, at a school in a French-speaking country. It's never specified exactly where she moves. And the school she works at has its students and teachers closely watched over by a mysterious figure called Madame Beck. Therefore, there are many parallels between the story of Lucy Snow in Villette and the story of Lucy in Kincaid's work. David Yost does explore this connection further in his article, A Tale of Three Lucys, Wordsworth and Bronte in Kincaid's Antigua and Villette. He points out that when visiting an art museum, Lucy Snow rejects the limiting roles the paintings there implicitly encourage of women as either exoticised and sexualised or, at the other end of the spectrum, angelic and devout. Lucy Snow in Villette also finds an outlet in performance. For instance, the play that the school puts on. When she performs, she half changes the nature of the role and acts to please herself. She takes the pleasure she has been denied, just as Lucy in Kincaid's novel does. And Lucy Snow and Villette also resist muteness, just as the other Lucy does, saying, I spoke, all leaped from my lips, I lacked not words now. Fast I narrated, fluent I told my tale, it streamed on my tongue. As Yoss says, though Lucy and Kincaid's novel may resent Mariah's Eurocentric abuse of books, Lucy still collects them obsessively. The key for Lucy is to make the books her own. 
By writing within the Western tradition of the building's romance, a coming-of-age novel, and echoing a Western novel, Villette, by Charlotte Bronte, Kincaid nonetheless makes the books and any art in them her own. While she critiques Gauguin and Wordsworth, she finds more connection with Charlotte Bronte, particularly the character of Lucy Snow, whose experiences are close to those of her own Lucy. Both Lucys feel alienated, disillusioned and constrained, and both find solace in creativity. Lucy in Kincaid's work finds her own freedom in creativity, in writing specifically rather than acting like in Villette. She makes her own mark on a blank page and finds her voice when once she stammered and bit her own tongue. If the loss of one's tongue means permanent exile, as Kristen Marlis pointed out, in recovering her voice and appropriating and subverting the voices of others, Lucy finds a kind of power in her writing. She knows that homes are, as Edward Said puts it, always provisional. Borders and barriers which enclose us within the safety of familiar territory can also become prisons. Antigua and the US can be prisons for Lucy. However, writing allows her a kind of catharsis or outlet for these feelings and a way of criticising both the prisons that contain her. Just like Lucy Snow, whose voice streams out from her like water. In Kincaid's Lucy, there are lots of metaphors and imagery of water. For instance, when she begins to write, Lucy in Kincaid's work feels a great wave of shame come over her. She's only written her name and the words, I wish I could love someone so much that I would die for it. Her tears caused all the words to become one great big blur. Water implies movement, mobility, and writing here seems to serve some kind of cathartic function. But water can also be dangerous. For instance, Villette ends with a drowning. The imagery of water here recalls Lucy in Kincaid's work, her traumatic journey in search for a place that would be a lifeboat to her small drowning soul. In the end, there is no place that can be a lifeboat to her small drowning soul, but writing forms a kind of lifeboat, a kind of escape. In Kincaid's work, Lucy also defines her past and future through the motif of water. She says, I was no longer in a tropical zone, and this realisation now entered my life like a flow of water dividing formerly dry and solid ground, creating two banks, one of which was my past, so familiar and predictable that even my unhappiness then made me happy now just to think of it, the other my future, a grey blank, an overcast seascape on which rain was falling and no boats were in sight. I was no longer in a tropical zone and I felt cold inside and out, the first time such a sensation had come over me. Therefore, exile and even writing in exile aren't glamorised in Kincaid's work, Instead, through the metaphor of water, which can be flow, can be movement, but can also symbolise separation and sadness. Kincaid shows the pain and isolation that exile can engender, and even the pain of writing in exile. Let's go back to Lucy's comparison of her home to an unbearable prison. In some ways, Lucy's only choice is to replace one prison with another. But in exile, she does gain a different perspective, which informs her writing. As Edward Said says, in exile, people often gain a plurality of vision. Exiles cross borders, break barriers of thought and experience, which he says in his essay, Reflections on Exile. In going abroad then, Lucy can see what makes a prison a prison. The persisting racism in the US, for example. 
and she can inhabit what Gillian Rose calls a paradoxical space, being both prisoner and exile, both within and without. Janelle Martin argues that Lucy ends with the narrator moving from an exile imposed by others, such as the exile she existed in in Antigua, to a self-imposed chosen exile, an exile from her family and from her homeland in the US. Martin quotes another critic, Evie Shockley, who calls this state a gothic homelessness, when the individual who is unwilling and or unable to achieve or maintain performances of ideologically privileged norms, as a result, comes to be located socially outside or on the margins of domestic space and the communities privileged by domestic ideology. Lucy remains on the margins, even in the US. Villette is also a gothic novel, so it's interesting that Shockley uses the term gothic in her description of this state. Villette is haunted by a ghostly nun, although the nun turns out to be a student sneaking out in disguise. The real gothicness of the book lies in Lucy Snow's treatment of herself at the beginning of the novel. Alone and penniless, her future dependent on her job, she fiercely denies herself any passionate emotions, determined to remain cold to survive in the world. Therefore, both Lucys recognise that exile has a gothic nature. At the start of the book, neither allows themselves to feel deeply because they have always been taught to do so is wrong. For Lucy Snow, by organised religion and discourse about women's roles in the world. For Lucy, by the colonialist patriarchal lessons she took away from both her mother and schooling. Lucy in Kincaid's work concludes, I am alone in the world and I shall always be this way, all alone in the world. She in some ways embraces this apartness, as Martin says, because it means she does not become complicit in the structure she criticises, but in other ways she still resents it because she yearns to feel the passionate emotion that those around her do. Suzanne Monitza Rozak interestingly argues that she doesn't submit to the conventional demands of upward vocational and economic mobility that some might to survive in the US. Instead, Lucy finds in creative work a politically engaged and personally fulfilling career. When asked if her home is a paradise, as it appears, Antigua being her home, Kincaid herself said that at the Chicago Humanities Festival, it's better to, ser- to rule in hell than serve in heaven. When reading Paradise Lost for the first time, she also says she thought Satan was great. (laughs) Now, this has a relevance that we'll come back to. So we're going to talk about names for a little bit. Names are also important here too, just as in the short story Girl. Lucy initially thinks about changing her name to Enid, like Enid Blyton, whose children's books have been criticised for their racist stereotypes. But she dismisses this later in order to claim her own name, Lucy, back from her mother, who tells her she named her for Lucifer. She says, Lucy, a girl's name for Lucifer, that my mother would have found me devil-like did not surprise me, for I often thought of her as godlike, and are not the children of gods devils? I did not grow to like the name Lucy, I would have much preferred to be called Lucifer outright, but whenever I saw my name, I always reached out to give it a strong embrace. We can see here that Kincaid also uses the story of Paradise Lost to reclaim power for her narrator Lucy, who likens herself to Satan and Lucifer, and who determines that it is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven, i.e. better to have her freedom in the US than to be at home in Antigua serving. 
Serena Plath points out the way in which Lucy echoes the Bible's opening line and tries to play God just as her namesake Lucifer had done. But rather than creating a world, her goal is the creation of herself. Lucy's self-creation is a bold act in a world that would deny her a narrative at all. It is not an echo, but a stream of words that we hear eventually falling from her lips. We only recognise in her the most subversive elements of the nameless girl in Kincaid's short story. I understood that I was inventing myself, Lucy says, and that I was doing this more in the way of a painter than in the way of a scientist. I could not count on precision or calculation. I could only count on intuition. We cannot precisely calculate the impact of exile on Lucy. We can only intuit from her emotions and her words how it makes her feel. I've mentioned several articles in this podcast, which I have linked on the website www.womenwritingpodcast.com if you would like to find out more about the articles, authors or other books I mentioned. If you're starting with Jamaica Kincaid, Yana Evans-Brazil writes a lot of good articles and books on the author, so I would recommend starting with those. Thank you so much for listening and I hope that you will come back again to listen to the other podcast episodes that will be up on the website very shortly. Thank you.